you're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Letter to Frank. Hello listeners, I'm glad you've joined me today for another program in Give Me the Bible. This program is going to be a a little different. You see, somebody loaned me a book a while ago, we're going to call him Frank, just to protect his name, and he asked me if I would read it, which I did. And um, I wrote him several letters because he asked me to appraise the book. So here we go. And I said to Frank, thank you so much for lending me the book. Seventh-day Adventism weighed and found wanting. I found it especially interesting insofar as it not only condemned Seventh-day Adventist beliefs, but clearly outlined the beliefs of the author. In writing his book, it is my opinion that John Ecop has cast a dark shadow over his own credibility. There are several reasons why I say this. Firstly, although John uses some Bible texts, I feel his theology is quite shallow and oversimplified. Secondly, I believe he's misunderstood much of what he's criticised. Thirdly, he has contorted and misapplied various Bible passages to fit his own personal bias. Fourthly, it is obvious that John is confused and hasn't studied his subject matter thoroughly. Fifthly, in some cases John has tried to convince his readers that truth can be based on assumptions. And in addition to that, John has contradicted himself, throwing much doubt on his credibility. The book does not appear to be an objective, sincere attempt to show how John thinks Adventism is wrong. It is biased and contains certain examples of hate speech. I've been through the book and will deal with a number of points. Most of what ECOB has written is to do with non-salvatic issues. On page 21 of the book he's written, So Seventh-day Adventists have two saviours. Christ, as the sin offering, dies for our sins, but it is the devil who bears our sins away. So Christ's blood does not cleanse the sinner, but the sanctuary in heaven. Such teaching makes Satan the final sin-bearer and therefore part of the work of redemption. Christ ceases to be the sin-bearer and is only the mediator between us and Satan to arrange for our sins to be judged by Satan. Can you honestly believe such radical, extreme accusations? Leviticus 16 tells about the yearly Day of Atonement, 
Starting at verse 6 through to 10, the Bible says, He, that's Aaron the high priest, shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And then, as recorded in verses 20 to 22, the narrative goes on. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring in the live goat. Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. No doubt you would realise that the sanctuary temple services instituted for the Israelites had their fulfilment in the future, in Christ's sacrifice for our sins. There is no question that our sins, having been forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus, are forgiven, full stop. Jesus is our substitute and is the only means by which anyone can be saved, right? John Ecob, however, has the temerity to suggest that Seventh-day Adventists have two saviours. That's exactly like saying Jesus was a liar. Christ's words were these, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our sins are only forgiven through Jesus Christ. Christ died for all. No question about that. But his substitutionary death was and is only effective for those who ask for forgiveness. But there are many people whose sins are never forgiven. They, like Satan, have to pay the penalty for their sins themselves. In Old Testament times, when the penitent sinner came to the sanctuary with a sacrifice, he laid his hands on the head of the innocent animal and confessed his sins. Why? This act symbolically transferred his sin and its penalty to the victim. As a result, he obtained forgiveness of sins. The laying on of hands upon the victim's head was an ordinary rite by which the substitution and transfer of sins is effected. The blood of the sin offering was applied in two ways. A. If it was taken into the holy place, it was sprinkled before the inner veil and placed on the horns of the altar of incense. 
And that's from Leviticus 4, 6, 7, 17 and 18. If it was not taken into the sanctuary, it was placed on the horns of the altar of burnt offering in the court. In that case, the priest ate part of the flesh of the sacrifice. In either case, the participants understood that their sins and accountability were transferred to the sanctuary and its priesthood. The scapegoat ritual on the Old Testament Day of Atonement pointed beyond Calvary to the final end of the sin problem, the banishment, the destruction of sin and Satan. The full accountability of sin will be rolled back on Satan, its instigator and originator. Satan and his followers and all the effects of sin will be banished from the universe by destruction. There is a difference. My sins and your sins, if we confess them, are forgiven. That's from 1 John 1, 9. But the originator of sin, Satan, is still going about his business as usual. Sin still exists, but God has a cut-off point when Satan will be finally destroyed. And you can read that from Revelation 20, verse 10. My sins, your sins, are forgiven through the merits and sacrifice of Christ. That's the end of them for us, unless we sin more. But while Satan exists, there will be sin in the world, and that has to be dealt with. If it is not dealt with, then sin would continue forever. God will ultimately and finally cleanse the universe of sin. Unfortunately, John Ecob has his theology confused. Seventh-day Adventists have one saviour, our mediator, Jesus Christ. Adventists are not in the least confused about that. Ecob is the confused one because he applies all forgiven sins as well as those unforgiven ones to be borne by Satan. In reality, Christ bore only the sins that are forgiven, although his death sufficed for all. But not everyone wants forgiveness. Therefore, the sins of the unrepentant are unforgiven, and as with the Old Testament practice, they are carried away by the symbolic scapegoat. Now the second issue is about the Antichrist. I'm fairly familiar with the teachings of evangelical Christian groups about end-time events and the role of the Antichrist. On page 33 of his book, E. Cobb states the following, the papacy is therefore not the Antichrist. Antichrist is an individual who will be destroyed by Christ at his second advent. But the papacy will be destroyed by Antichrist and his ten kings at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 18 describes the burning of the papacy. 
Now, Ecob anticipates that the Antichrist will only appear in the future. You may not be aware of the origin of this Antichrist teaching, but it originated from the Roman Catholics in 1561 at the Council of Trent. A Jesuit priest, Francisco Ribera, in an endeavour to turn people away from the Protestant Reformation, came up with an idea that was readily accepted by the Pope. Part of what Ribera suggested concerned the Antichrist being a single individual who would rise up in the distant future. Most of the Protestant reformers identified the papacy as the Antichrist. That Catholic future Antichrist teaching has since been widely accepted by various susceptible Protestant groups and is commonly taught, more or less, as Ecob has described. Antichrist has been shuffled off into the future. How then do you interpret 1 John 2.18? John says, Little children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. And in verse 22 he adds, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. In 1 John 4, verse 3, the Apostle John states that the Antichrist is now already in the world. If John, the Apostle, recognized that the Antichrist was already in the world when he was alive, somebody has made a big mistake by teaching that Antichrist is, at this point of time, yet future. Frank, there are other issues raised in Ecob's book, but I will prepare further answers later, as it will then be easier for you to take it all in, instead of everything at once. We're going to stop here and have a little break, and I'm going to read to you letter two straight afterwards. There's a lighthouse on the be no more. 
everybody about us says, tear that old lighthouse down. The big ships just don't pass this way anymore. So there's no use of standing around. Then my mind goes back to that one dark, stormy night when just in time I saw the light. Yes, it was the light from that old lighthouse that stands up there on the hill. And I thank we come to letter two. Dear Frank, in this answer to John E. Cobb's booklet, I want to deal with three issues. They are in regard to the teaching about the 70th week in Daniel's 70-week prophecy, about the secret rapture, and a little about the transference from the Sabbath to Sunday. On page 5 of Ecob's booklet, he says, In the area of Bible prophecy, the Seventh-day Adventist movement has adopted the errors of the year-day theory. It has assumed it can change days to years, when Scripture clearly means days. And again, he asserts the same idea on page 44, where he says, The year-day theory must be seen as erroneous. When the Bible speaks of a day, it means a day. When it speaks of months and years, it means months and years. So, Ecob asserts that days means days and weeks means weeks, etc. Okay? But, on page 37, he writes about the so-called cut-off 70th week and then states this. What then is the interpretation of the prophecy of the 1260 days? Scripture indicates that the tribulation will be a period of seven years, immediately following the removal of the church at the rapture. Now the prophecy was for 70 weeks, so the last week should be seven days. Yet Echob has now extrapolated the days miraculously extends to seven years, in contradiction to what he previously said about days meaning days and weeks meaning weeks. No, John E. Cobb, you have just shot yourself in the foot again. You insisted that days were 24-hour days and that weeks were actual weeks. Come on now, you have to be consistent. Suddenly, because your initial premise was wrong, you've now bent the rules and reverted to the year-day principle of prophetic time you criticised Seventh-day Adventists for accepting. Frank, 
I feel that the arguments presented by the author of the book you gave me collapse under close scrutiny. And while we're on the subject, you should also give consideration to the time prophecy of Daniel 9. Verse 25 gives the starting point of the 70-week, that is, 490 days prophecy. It says, Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild, rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, did you notice the wording? It was the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But are you aware that the Persian kings made three decrees? The first decree was made by King Cyrus in 537 BC. The second was made by King Darius I in 520 BC. And the third was made by King Artaxerxes in 457 BC. But the prophecy's starting point, as pointed out in verse 25, was to be from the going forth of the decree, that's the command, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So which decree does one use as the starting date for the prophecy? Now, if you take time to read the account of the exile's return to Jerusalem, as recorded in the book of Ezra, there is one and only one thing which delineates the date of the starting point of the prophecy from all the three dates. In the first two decrees, the orders were to rebuild the temple. In the third decree, as recorded in Ezra 7, 25 and 26, there's a difference. Here the king is giving directions to set up the civil state with laws and a legal system. This decree refers to the establishment of the civil state, Jerusalem, and not just about the temple, the centre of worship. It involved not just the rebuilding of walls and roofs and so on. It involved the rebuilding of society with law and order. The decree issued by King Artaxerxes was issued in 457 BC. And that makes a big difference to the calculations and the conclusions. Again, when studying Ecob's book and studying what the Bible actually says, I see Ecob not taking notice of the detail recorded in Scripture. And later I'll show you a similar gaffe he made in the section relating to Sabbath and Sunday. Frank, I've heard you earlier speak about the rapture, meaning the secret rapture of all God's people, dead or alive at the time of Christ's secret return to earth prior to the so-called seven years of the 70th week. I too believe in a rapture, but not a secret one. Ecob writes about the so-called secret rapture, Although you may accept the secret rapture theory, there is not one shred of evidence in the Bible 
to support that teaching. In my opinion, it is a deception, and those who teach it are, as Jesus described, false prophets. The secret rapture idea was developed by Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, Hal Lindsey, and several others. They took up the Catholic diversional teaching about the one-man Antichrist. This doctrine on the secret rapture is contradictory to the words of Jesus in Matthew 13, when he said that the wheat and tares would grow together until the end of the world. I'm also perfectly aware of what Jesus said, as recorded in Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, about two men in the field and two women grinding at the mill, and one taken and the other left. Verse 42 explains the previous two verses, which says, Watch, therefore, for you don't know what hour your Lord will come. There is absolutely nothing there that even suggests a secret coming of the Lord. The only descriptions of Christ's coming are that it will be loud, spectacular and glorious. If you apply the text from Matthew 24, verses 41 and 42, to be the foundation for the secret rapture theory, I want to know if there are any others besides men in the field and women grinding the corn who will be taken or left. What I can agree on is that we do not know when Christ will return. What we disagree on is that when Jesus comes to collect those who are his, is that there will be a lack of solid biblical evidence to support support the idea that his return will be secret. John Ecob wrote quite an impressive chapter, that's chapter 8, about seven rules for interpreting scripture. As far as the methodology goes, he's pretty right. But unfortunately, he does not practice what he preaches. I don't know who's been influenced by this book, but I want to point out two other glaring errors. On page 28, Ecop wrote, The church was formed on the day of Pentecost, which was the first day of the week. And it was the custom at Troas for the disciples to come together to break bread on the first day of the week. But if you take the trouble to check up in Acts 2, verses 46 and 47, you will see that the members of the early church broke bread, which means ate together, daily. It was not a special thing just for Sunday, as Ecob postulates, nor was it a custom to come together only on Sunday. Ecop has spun words in such a way that he makes it appear that only on Sunday the believers came together to break bread. The following text below has also been misquoted to suit Ecob's thesis. He says, The Corinthian church was instructed to bring their gifts for the Lord's work on the first day of the week. That's 1 Corinthians 16.2. Now here's the difference. Ecob says to bring their gifts. 
The New International Version says to set aside. The King James Version says lay by him in store. The Amplified Version says personally put aside something and save it up. The New American Standard says put aside and save. You see, there is no mention whatsoever of bringing their gifts to a meeting place. The members were advised to save up some money at home, putting it away each Sunday. Frank, I respect your enthusiasm for what you believe, but I question some of those beliefs, especially if they are founded on teachings of such people as John E. Cobb. I think John E. Cobb could be rightly accused of intellectual dishonesty, as he has included things to support his arguments that are not supported by scriptures, and that is one of the reasons I question his credibility. I'll share more with you in the next letter. And listeners, this is as far as we go today, but next time I have two more letters that I've written to Frank about this book. <laughs> 